Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, speaking today with Brian Collins of Ohio University. He is the author of The Other Rama, Matricide and Genocide in the Mythology of Parashurama. Hello, Brian, and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Raj. So The Other Rama, maybe just dive into telling us who this other Rama is that your book is about. Well, so of the the, the classical 10 avatars of Vishnu, there are arguably three humans, or three main humans. One of them is Rama, Rama Dasharatha, Rama, the, the, the uh, hero of the Ramayana. And then there's another one named Rama, who no one calls Rama, because I would confuse him with the better Rama. So he takes the name Parashurama, which he doesn't have in the original literature. And so his name is Rama, but he has to become something other than Rama to fit in on this category, on this, in this category of the ten. Avatar, so he becomes Rama with the axe, and uh, that's the Ramayana interesting because he is so in many ways diametrically opposed to the other, the other other Rama, or the real Rama, the first Rama, Rama of the Ramayana. Well, they are opposed. I mean, they both uh, have moments of of violence or even sanctioned violence, shall we say? But there's something uh, very different about Parashurama's uh, form of violence, wouldn't you say? Uh, definitely. So, uh, Parashurama's best known, his mid-cycle, uh, is, begins with him being born as a result of a ritual mistake, uh, where his mother does something wrong, and instead of getting a perfect Brahmin son she wanted, she gets a Brahmin son with the spirit or with the insides of a kshatriya. And then uh, his next act, well, the next thing we know about him is that his mother, Renuka, goes out to the forest, goes out to the water, and sees a handsome bathing Gandharva prince and spills water on herself, wets herself somehow, and comes back. And her husband sees what she's done and, and knows from this that she has been mentally unfaithful to him and orders Padashurama to decapitate her with his axe, which he does. And then normally she's put back together again. The next thing that happens is that his, uh, his family's cow is stolen by a king in retaliation. He kills the king. The king's sons kill his father. And then he takes a vow to kill all the kshatriyas in the world 21 times. And so it's, there's lots of violence in Hindu myths, but there is, this is a, a different level of violence. It's a, it is an extermination, uh, generation after generation, after, enough to fill five oceans of blood. Uh, so this is a, it is, you're right, it's extreme, it's different, it's unusual. Um, in some ways, it, it, it's, it's, it goes along with other themes in the epics, but it also is generally seen as extreme by the commentators, by other people, as some, something off to the side, something that doesn't quite fit into the worldview. Well, when you have a character whose biography consists of the systematic conscious extermination of 21 generations of a class of people, surely this is worth paying attention to. So um, your, your book is really the only sustained examination of this character, isn't it? Well, there is another book. It's uh, Akar Press put it out in India. It came out the same year that I published the dissertation. This book was based on 10 years ago. And that book is by my friend uh, Pradeep Chowdhury. And it's a very good study of uh, published from that he wrote some time before, uh, but it's not widely available. And it doesn't really have a lot of interpretation. It's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of philology and a lot of, uh, I mean, it's a great book, but it is, uh, it's not widely, widely available. It's not in the United States. And then there's a German book that came out in the 75 uh, that, that, that there was a man in Dial, Albert Dial wrote. And that's never been translated into English and or even ever been reprinted. So besides those two, this is the only one. And that's why I decided to write a dissertation, because I just 
looked for something that people weren't working on and that also thought was very strange and pursued it. Always afraid that somebody else was going to start working on it and finish before I was done. Oh, it's such a fascinating character. It's like, uh, you know, um, someone's written a book on Krishna, of the, uh, his role in the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata world. Surely there's um, more to be done. There's, there's so many layers to this character. It's a rich topic. We do a variety of interviews here. Um, I, like yourself, am a textual scholar, but of course I have lots of people on here who look at material culture or interviews or um, a variety of things. But just to clarify for our listeners, what, what is your data for this book? What are you looking at? Well, I am a textual scholar, as you said. And so I am mainly looking at the Mahabharata, which is where I think the myth comes from, and also the Ramayana, where he plays a smaller role. And then there are several major Puranas afterwards uh, and, and regional Puranas. So it's Puranic literature, epic literature, and then in translation, because there's a lot of languages that I don't know, uh, people have collected uh, temple stories and, uh, and village myths. And so I've also dealt a lot with whatever I can find there. I've tried to find, I tried to find all of the Parashrama literature that I could get my hands on, but you know, that was a fool's dream and it's not possible. But it, it, there is, there is, it's more manageable, say, than literature on Krishna or Rama. But uh, that's, so I'm, I also, though, look at some, some rituals, uh, some, some ritual material, and some philosophical material. But mainly it is the texts, mostly the Sanskrit texts, and then the regional stuff. So um, textual project, you're looking at text, and also, the, is it fair to say you take a very literary approach and that uh, much of this may read as a character sketch of sorts? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Poshurama is a character that's invented by authors for a, an epic story that they wanted to tell. It's clear that they wanted to do something with this character. So it's never, it's not a historical person. It's not uh, even a, a, a sort of a, symbol of an idea, it is a literary character. I think, you know, Hiltzapayal's point that we can get a lot by reading Mahaparata's literature, and when you do that, you know, you have a character study, like you said, yeah. Well, it's, a, it's fascinating. I just want to sort of tease it out, because there are many people, for example, who may study the Mahabharata uh, text, but they're looking at uh, more the world behind the text or the world in front of the text or, 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 the, or the critical edition project or, you know, then there'll be certain projects that are looking at the world within the text primarily. So um, I think what you do is similar to what I do, but it's not necessarily um, uh, uh, the most popular or dominant approach, but I think it's very rich to look at Sanskrit narrative um, in a manner not dissimilar to how we look at comparative literature, certain English literature. Um, obviously, there are other moving parts to your project. Uh, you're looking at, uh, at, at uh, how the texts have been used over the centuries as well. But it's, you know, I sort of, um, I sort of had this idea to do a project called Mapping Markandeya, <laughs> where I looked at everything, everywhere we see Markandeya. Um, now I've just I think I've more or less abandoned that as a book project because I have a chapter in uh, book two is coming out shortly called Mapping Markandeya. I think I'm satisfied, but I had this idea of, well, let's look at wherever we see Markandeya and it's vast. And so when you're looking at Parashurama, you're looking, hey, do you want to tell us about that process? You're looking, um, you basically have different angles of this character from different texts. And arguably, I mean, it's, it's a, arguably you're, you're constructing something from them more than examining something. You know, can you say something about that? Yeah, sure. So obviously you have to have some way of organizing a book like this. Uh, you can't just, I mean, it would be an encyclopedia otherwise. It wouldn't have any argument or point to it. So what I did was I broke it down into three major themes and so the first one is the mixed birth theme, which I found to be more looked at it, it seemed like there was a lot of really deliberate symbolism going on there. But the idea that he's created, first of all, I mean, he's, he's created twice in the Mahabharata, once with a mixed up um, rice pudding drink, and then once with a mixed up tree ritual. And then, of course, also his father is a Brahmin and his mother's a Kshatriya. So on top of the mixed ritual, he has a mixed parentage, literally. Uh, and so it seemed, it seemed like they were really hammering the point at home that he was mixed in some way. 
It's also interesting, and I think important, that his mother gets to abort him and pass the curse down to another generation so that her son will be born as a regular Brahmin. So the woman who's supposed to bear him as a child opts not to. And that seems, you know, this is also the, the avatar with no wife, with no, with no consort, with no family uh, beyond his father who is dead and his mother who he decapitates. But that seemed like an important thing, his sort of the genetics of Parashrama. And the second was the killing of his mother. This is a pretty extreme act. And it's probably where the name comes from, because he doesn't kill all the Kshatriyas with an axe. He kills them with arrows, it's clear. The only time he uses an axe is when he decapitates his mother. So he's known as the mother head chop. And so I looked at that. And then I looked at his, what I call it, I call it varnicide, because that's really the most technically accurate term for me. He's selecting his victims by varna, by kshatriyas. So I got those three themes. And then I looked at them sort of in isolation, and they pointed me to other texts that that spoke to the same issues. So the... Uh, the destruction of the Kshatriyas obviously pointed me to the Mahabharata itself and the Mahabharata war, and specifically Ashvatthama, who was closely connected to, and his night raid to, to annihilate the Pandavas and try to annihilate their offspring. And then I looked at his matricide, and that led me to the story of Chirakari, a son with the exact same situation who doesn't chop his mother's head off because he's waiting uh, to, to, to determine what the right thing to do is. He's thinking for too long, and he thinks for so long that his father withdraws the command. So there's other places where matricide happens or is implied, and so that led me to other texts. And so that's, that was sort of the way I did I started out with a composite version of the Parashurama story, taking everything and putting it together. Because there's other parts that come after the Mahabharata that become very important in the regional traditions, like in creating the land of Kerala the Malabar coast by pushing out the ocean or, uh, or him like Shiva getting rid of his mother's head in a sacred pool. So as I focus on a theme, I thought of other myths and some of them Indian, some non-Indian that could illuminate that theme for me. So that's what I use comparison for is to get a richer and more detailed picture of this character, which I think is also a way for the authors to tell us something important about the way they saw the world. So there is a little bit of a looking at the world behind the text there, but it's through literature, as you say. So, so you have this, this character that appears um, in various texts, um, and there's probably a great overlap in, in elements of his biography, and certain texts may emphasize or include or exclude other elements. And so um, you, do you want to talk about this idea of a macro myth that you talked about in your introduction? in terms of how you're using the, uh, the, the mid-cycle of uh, Purusharama? Okay, uh, so I, you know, my teacher was Wendy Doniger, is still Wendy Doniger, really. She never stopped helping me. No, she's not paid to do it anymore. And, uh, and I like her idea of the macro-myth and the micro-myth. So for me, a macro-myth is a sort of a maximal version of the myth, a myth with all of the possible parts put into it, or, you know, the things that make the myth important in different places and times are all put together. So while in Mahabharata, it's not so important that he creates a land from the sea. It, it, uh, it is important in other Parashrama myths. So the macro myth includes that part, even though it's not one of the earliest parts. But I think that every the way it develops, it, it develops out of themes that are already present in the core of the myth. The macro myth is the biggest, it's one that doesn't exist anywhere except for where I wrote it down, where I put everything together. Would you say it's transhistorical, the macromyth? Yeah, I think it's, well, it, to me, it's a guide. It's a guide because even the things that aren't part of the original mythology, they don't get added by accident. I mean, they get added on purpose, obviously, but I think they only work with the myth because they resonate with themes that are already in the core. And so that's, that, for me, is, is just a way to kind of introduce where this, sort of like an exploded drawing. To see something that's compact, you have to sort of explode it in in metaphorical form to see how its parts all fit together. And then a a micro-myth is when I sort of strip all the details out and see the simplest part of the story. And that's where other opportunities for comparison for me came in. So this idea that after he gives up the earth and sacrifice, 
he annihilates all the Kshatriyas. Finally, he stops. He makes a big sacrifice, which he gives away the whole earth. And then he's not allowed to stand there anymore because it's no longer his. So he has to create a place that he can go. And so this is, this is a common sort of a taboo myth from around the world where people have to create a new land. We see it in Ireland, we see it in ancient Greece because they are banished in some way from the old land. So the idea of banishment sort of came into it there. So the, the more I kind of I try to um, extrapolate from the myth elements, the more comparison I got. So there is, an, there is a level of uh, opportunities for comparison I got. There is a certain level where this is not just transhistorical, but imaginary. Like this myth, the myth that I came up with doesn't exist anywhere. But I think as far as uh, having a roadmap for how to do this kind of work, the imagination has to come into play. If you don't think you're using imagination when you do this stuff, you're kidding yourself. That's, that's my position anyway. You might as well embrace the imaginative work of reading. Well, it's, um, I think you, I think you, uh, certainly there are differences in our approaches, but I think overall we, uh, there's so much that we share uh, in terms of how we approach these texts. Um, as I, I've said before, it's neither here nor there. I have all kinds of interviewees, similar projects to similar projects, similar worldviews to similar worldviews. But, but there is, uh, you've internalized the same that I have in that the world within the text is the primary object of study. You're studying narrative. You're studying, um, you're studying uh, an expression of ideals and values. Uh, symbols, right, and and that's of course informed by the world behind the text, and of course it shapes the world in front of the text. But uh, it, 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 the essence of the narrative is in the narrative, which needs to be understood in its own terms. You know, I borrow this idea from Member to echo, you know, um, model readership. You know, what are you expected to learn from this? And that's why I think in in South Asia, when you have um, um, narratives that are extended by various authors over generations, over vast spans of culture within the subcontinent, um, it's not done sort of willy-nilly. There, there is an attention to, uh, uh, to sort of, in essence, uh, an essential structure of a character and what, what that character can be said to represent. So I kind of really resonate. There, there was one, um, well, there's a number of quotes. I won't, I won't say too much specifically about the book. I'll leave that to you. But this idea that, you know, uh, because one may say, well, which myth are you looking at? In which context? At which time? And, and I think the very word myth bespeaks something much broader. And you say myth transmission is not like a row of dominoes. It is a diffusion through language, theology, ritual, state formation, psychology, natural philosophy, folklore, life patterns, institutional authority, religious experience, technology, and collective identity. It really does span the range of, 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 of human experience. And so I sort of want to, to bring that to the fore as we continue to dive into the book in terms of your approach. Yeah, I you know. So the big question in you, which you've raised is about symbols, I think. And value. I think, I think about values, worldviews, and anxieties as being the things that myths express. But the way they do it is through symbol. And so when I read, you know, when I read Medusa's hair and Vinnet Avayasekera's work, I was just, uh, this, this, that really was a turning point for me to see how he takes Freud in anthropology and in Weberian sociology in a way to look at, at texts. And so that, that's part of my, of my method is borrowed from the Bayesekra. But so symbols have to work and they have to work. They have to have somebody who interprets them and somebody who crafts them. And there's a medium in which the interpreter and the crafter meet as a text or it's performance or it's a piece of art or something. And so you have to, there's also, there's a sort of a melding of horizons that happens when you read a text. You can only read the text from your point of view. You can't kid yourself in thinking that you're reading it like somebody read it in, in on the 5th century CE. So the text has changed as it comes down to When you talk about, for example, when you talk about eliminating 21 generations of people, I don't know what that means in the context of, of the 5th century CE India. I think it probably is borrowing from Vedic rituals and Vedic myths. But now we all know what that means. That, that we have a word for it, genocide. Right? We talk, that's what we talk about. We want to we wipe out a group of people. When, uh, 
when you want to destroy a massive amount of people at the same time, I don't know what that means in fifth century CE India. I think it has, I can make some guesses, but for us, we can't think about that without thinking about nuclear weapons or poison gas or all the things that we have that are our part of our world that are now part of the text as we read it. So there's a world in the text, but you know, unlike the Greek myths, this is, this is a text that means different things to people. I mean, it's part of people's identity. So when I talk to people in India, who's oh, Chitpav and Brahmins, for instance, in Mumbai. You know, Parashurama is a patron deity, and, and, and they sort of to see their livelihood is descended from his actions, you know, in, in the Golden Age. Well, not the Golden Age in this case, but in, you know, in time past. And so people identify themselves, but they understand themselves through myths like this, uh, not in the same way that they do with other myths of gods who are more... Uh, favored in temples and, and puja and rituals and holidays and things. But it is a, a sort of a lens uh, for self-understanding and other understanding. And so that's a mechanism that I think has to be unpacked and careful reading and deep context are the only way uh, to do it. So you have to go and find particular instantiations of this myth. So for instance, in Maharashtra in the 18th century, becomes a popular story because uh, there is a group of Brahmins there who are given power as, as Peshwas and who rule basically as regents of Maharashtra before the British uh, fully take over. And so for them, Pojarama's gift of the, of the land, his uh, destruction of the country, his raising up the Brahmins is sort of there, the warrant for their political power. Uh, same thing is happening in uh, Kerala and, and in uh, and in parts of Goa, where high-caste high Brahmins are identifying themselves as products of Parashurama's actions. So even the things that they think of as extreme or too far uh, still greatly inform the way that they understand themselves. And so the, 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 very, the very kind of um, overboard nature of the myth, and that's what I wanted to focus on. So, you know, how can people, how can kings go around comparing themselves to Parashurama favorably, and his whole thing is killing kings. So what's going on in people's minds with a simple can be read in such an opposite way to what it looks like on its surface? Well, you have to go and uh, dig a little deeper, which is what I've tried to do. So tell us a bit more about that deeper. Tell us perhaps how uh, certain rulers could possibly venerate this um, this Kshatriya annihilating figure, um, maybe say something about, um, you know, is not the tension between um, Brahmanas and Kshatriyas uh, at the heart of this character, his, his biography? It is. So I, my theory, but of what I have landed on is I think that the origin of the myth is with a group of anxious Brahmas who saw the world changing around them. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that they knew Ashoka Moria and were, their patroness was being pulled and given to a Sangha somewhere. But I think there was a, a zeitgeist of a shift in uh, favor from Brahmin priests to Buddhist uh, monasteries. And so I even though that may have been a slight shift, we know that, we know that the Morians also patronized a lot of Brahmins. But... You know, you can't, t- people have unreasonable fears about the world and you can't talk them out of them. We see that today, right? We see that everywhere. So Brahmins, it doesn't have to be actually happening that they're being marginalized for them to feel marginalized, to feel victimized. So this is a fantasy of Brahmin power, a projection of what should be so that they can, you know, this is, this is an also Bronckhorst, you know, Johannes Bronckhorst has made this argument too, that the Brahmin power that we see in ethics is a symbol of Brahmin's own power that they want to sort of advertise. Uh, that they can be a king's best friend or worst enemy, depending on how well or poorly they're treated. And at the same time, this is a model for kings should, should act like the kings in these stories who pay Brahmins the proper respect and the proper you know, patronage properly. Uh, so give them you know, the, the plots of land to live on, which is part of our regional uh, Parashram stories. So it's a conflicted story that's a fantasy of power uh, from a group that sees itself as marginalized. But then 
it also taps into this very deep, I think, psychological tension of the family, uh, of, of the family unit that, that is, I think, transcultural, a sort of a, 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 difficult, a difficulty that children have in understanding their parents' relationships to each other and to them. And so Parashurama has a kind of a fantasy, an Oedipal fantasy uh, you know, outcome when he, after he kills his mother because he brings her back to life and then his father is suddenly killed by another kind of father figure who he then kills. This is another interesting transformation that I'll get into in a minute, the, the figure who, um, who kills Parashurama's father. But at the end of it, he has a mother who is subservient to him is sort of dead and alive at the same time. And he stays stunted at that point in his development. He never goes on to father children or have a wife. And that's never explained either. Uh, it's, it's a, his father was also a Brahmin ascetic who had a wife and children. So why doesn't he? I think that there's a sort of a psychological story happening here too. So when you mix up a political exigency, like, um, like a sort of a symbol of fantasy, fantasized power, and I think a deep psychological narrative, then I, then I think it takes almost sort of a life of its own. It has power that's both unconscious and, you know, conscious and, and sort of ideological uh, and, and sort of uh, wielded. And so people can use the myth to do things, but when, as they use it, it also are sort of changed by their reading of it, I think. And that's how uh, it, it can be, it can be the case you can identify yourself with Parashurama knowing that he is an enemy of your people. And there's a part of the Mahabharata, part of his story is that he takes Karna as a student. And Karna has his own strange parentage, right? his own terrible relationship with his mother, uh, who he walks away from. But his mother has given him up when he was a child. And so he teaches Karna the secret weapon. And then once Karna see, once Karna you know, is able to withstand a bug boring through his leg and Parashurama sees it and says, you know, why would you, why didn't you wake me up when a bug was boring through your leg and I was sleeping on your lap? And he said, I didn't want to disturb you. And then Parashurama says, only a Kshatriya would be so stupid as to let a bug eat through his leg. So I curse you to forget everything I've taught you. So we have a kind of a relationship here where he has a, 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 a student and this student mirrors his story in a way that has to do with the mother. And so even within the epic, there's all these sort of connections that whenever, wherever Parashurama goes, he either takes on elements of another story or reflects elements of someone else's story back in a way that could be reversed or polarized or, um, or slightly changed. And so he's, he's a kind of a chameleon figure. I mean, chameleon's not the right word. He's kind of a focusing figure. And so I, I think that's what makes him so ambivalent. He is sort of really ambivalent by nature. He's the only one who's an avatar, which is God down to earth, the infinite brought down into finite form for a set task and then back up to Vishnu's heaven. He's that, but he's also an undying immortal. So how can he be an avatar and immortal at the same time? He's the only one in all of Hindu mythology. He's, he, he's, he, is light, he is time expanded and time compressed at the same time. So all this means that I think anybody can find anything in Parashurama, any group. Kings identify with him, Brahmins identify with him for the same reasons, because he is so full of ambivalence and such a uh, sort of a focusing, um, as a focusing force for character stories around him. And uh, although um, he's perhaps, as you say, um, easily adoptable as a symbol of XYZPQ. Certainly there, there are themes um, that he stringently represents. Um, you, you know, you mentioned a bit about his role in the Mahabharata uh, and uh, as, the, as, the, as the teacher of uh, Karna. What else does he do in the Mahabharata? Who else does he teach? Oh, well, he, he so he... Um famously has a duel uh, with Bhishma over Umba. Uh, and Umba comes to him for, Bhishma you know, kidnaps these three princesses to give to his brothers. One of them, it turns out, he doesn't need, so he tells her to go back to her family. But she says, I've already been kidnapped. I can't go back. 
you have to somehow take care of me. And he says, well, taking a vow of celibacy, you're on your own, basically. And she goes to Purge Rama and asks him to take up vengeance, vengeance on Bhishma. And so they have a duel in which um, neither one of them wins, and they both withdraw. So Purge is kind of a guru figure for all of the epic heroes, but Bhishma and Drona, who he, both of whom he helps, uh, are, are important there. But he has really conflictual relationships with them. Uh, so he fights on the same side, or he's on the same side as Bhishma, but with this story of, the, of Amba, of the stolen bride, uh, they come into conflict. He also, eons before the epic is supposed to have said, has have taken place, he's the one who consecrates the Kurukshetra, the battleground of the Mahabharata. That's the place where he deposits all the blood of the Kshetra. So he foreshadows it. So that's why I think he was added very late. Um, it, it's sort of a, because it, 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 the story of the Kshetra um, blood soaking into the ground, right? This happens in the battle, but it's also then given a foreshadow in a distant age that the Purushram was part of. But he's still here. He's still here. He's the only one from that age that's still around, this long-lived character. Uh, so uh, in the Mahabharata, he is, uh, he has a strange role as, as someone who is there from the very, very beginning of the epic to the very, very end of the epic. And also someone who is a sort of an eyewitness and who intervenes at some key times, Karna being one of them. Now, if you take his story out, Karna would still die on the battlefield because other things conspired against Karna, other forces. Uh, but he is one of them who conspired against him. So his duel with Bhishma, which I actually didn't get a chance to treat in my book, and I'm thinking I'm going to write an article about it, and his uh, tutelage of Karna are what he's best known for in the, uh, in the Mahabharata, besides his his, uh, his destruction of trajectories in the past age. Oh, at least in the Mahabharata. Um, could you say what you think he's primarily a symbol of? I think he's a layered symbol, and that's why he's, he's so important to understand um, him in, in a broadest context. People are really uh, two layers. One is the, is the Brahmin Kshatriya conflict, and the other is the maternal and paternal conflict. I think these two conflicts sort of map on to each other. He is both the sort of the center of a, of a triangle with his parents for affection and for sort of approval, the approval of his mother and of his, his father, and also uh, a sort of political symbol of the, of the Brahmin who can kill Kshatriyas. So because he's both those things, I think he works on a psychological level, uh, would you identify with him as sort of as, as a, an Oedipal character, in fact, I think, you know, he has his own, he might have his own sort of complex named after him and as a political character. So that this sort of duality, this sort of, you know, two layers is, is why the symbol is, is so potent. And that's what he's a symbol of for me. That's uh, fascinating. Now, what would you say if there were um, those listening or perhaps some of our colleagues or whomever about, well, you know, is it problematic? And this is a question, obviously. I have no opinion. Is it problematic to use uh, Western psychoanalytical um, uh, tropes to look at, you know, ancient Sanskrit uh, narrative? You know, what would you say in that pain? Right. Well, you know, it's a, it, it's a great question, and it is something that I've, I've thought about and, and uh, written some about. But the fact is, when you look at psychoanalysis and the development of psychoanalysis, the myths came first. They didn't come up with these ideas and then say, oh, this myth looks just like that. Let's name it after Oedipus. His deep reading of, 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 of the Greek classics really informed the way Freud was thinking early on. Now, there's problems with the way he read the text. There's people have written about this. But it is an engagement with a, an Indo-European classical tradition, which has direct analogs with the Indian classical tradition. So, A, I think they have some common ground to begin with. Also, the fact that it has persisted for so long means that it is, oh, has other cultural uh, values encoded in it besides the ones of 5th century uh, India. And so I think that we can think about it as a way, if it speaks to us, if it makes sense to us, if we get something out of it that maybe wasn't there uh, centuries ago, then 
that's a reason to read it as we would any other text as a, as literature. I mean, Freud's not Freud wasn't trying to create a model of you know of turn of the century Vienna childhood, but rather of childhood of development. And so, I've looked at at other other work on India or Indian myth that uses psychoanalysis. I think there are good ways to do it in ways that are reductive, um, but as a tool, as one tool among many, I think it can be very, uh, very useful. For example, the whole idea of, uh, of this dead mother. Well, there's, there's a lot written about this in, in uh, French psychoanalysis. It's a, it's a fascinating idea. The things happened to Renuka really, when you take the post-trauma story and follow it forward in time to how it splinters in, into these um, regional traditions, there's two major Renuka traditions that, that separate. One is that she's turned into a headless goddess who is a head worshipped alongside a headless goddess, rather. So her head is worshipped, and then there's, her body is worshipped, and she's never put back together, but she's alive. And he, in those traditions, becomes sort of a little temple guardian. He becomes a sort of a, a forever son to it. And in other traditions, she's just, she, she's just like a zombie. She never has, says or does anything else after she's put back together. So she's sort of resurrected as a living dead mother. This is an absent mother, a cold mother. And this is what the psychoanalyst would say. And I think this, this, play, this plays out in the fact that he never has any relationships that we consider familial in India at the time or now. Uh, his only relationships are with students who he teaches, you know, war to. So I think that when you when something rings true with other parts of the myth, and you found it, or you sort of uncovered it, or analyzed it through psychoanalysis, then that's that's some evidence there that the that the that the tradition is is useful. I, mean, I don't think the humanities can make claims to scientific accuracy. All they can do is creatively redescribe texts. Uh, that, that's how I see it. So every interpretation is just a redescription. But the terms you use to redescribe it can be a number of things, psychoanalysis one. There are a number of um, characters in, in sort of the sensory literary world that I think have a fascinating relationship with uh, Parashurama um, in, in mutually illuminating both that character and also Parashurama. Can you say a little bit about, for example, Vishwamitra and how this relates? Yes, of course. So Vishwamitra is, according, it's, it depends how you, how you, which version you're reading, but he is basically um, the cousin of, of Parashurama. And he is the other half of the mistake, of the ritual mistake. He is the, he is the Kshatriya born with the soul of a Brahma. And so, uh, Vishwamitra goes on to have his own career, and it's been very, um, it's, it has very, very good study by uh, by Adish Satayi about it. Uh, that he's written a couple articles uh, and a book about Vishwamitra as a symbol of of, um, of Brahman power. He is a king who becomes a Brahmin through his own through his own will, an act of will. Uh, he's, he's he's also kind of unique in that way. So he is a. a a sort of a mirror image of Parashurama. They don't really have a lot of contact in the mythology, but he he uh, sort of represents the other half of that equation. What happens when you put a Brahmin inside a Kshatriya? Well, you get Vishwamitra. Vishwamitra is an irascible and angry sage, but he does not have the same explosive power that, that, uh, that Rama does, Parashurama does. So it's almost as if... Um, when you look at them side by side, uh, Vishwamitra gets locked into a conflict with, uh, with Vasishta, and that's his great rivalry. Uh, there's other stories about him, too. Of course, he brings Rama out as a child to defeat the China. But mostly he's locked in a stable, a stable rivalry. They're sort of mirror images of each other. One wins and the other wins. Uh, but Parashurama explodes out of this rivalry into a complete chaotic destruction or really systematic destruction uh, and then disappears without, a, without really being able to disappear because he's an immortal. So the, the, the text seems to be telling us that a Brahmin's power in, 
mixed with a Kshatriya's weakness of will and and um, and sort of uh, I mean, sort of emotionality, uh, or that's not a word, um, with, with their passionate nature is a terrible combination. Whereas the other way, things seem to work out. Vishwamitra pretty much stabilizes his his uh, his story, whereas Prashama is anything but. Yeah, they're they're, um, they're a fascinating pair, aren't they? Uh, in that both of them embody this this tension um, between sort of uh, what I think of as Brahmanical inner ascetic power and then outer martial um, warrior kingly power. Um, in my brain, this is the 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 dharmic double helix, right? This is the tension of so much that we see in South Asia in terms of um, in the Brahm in the Brahmanical imaginary. You know, Brahmins are um, supposed to be uh, self-composed, you know, practice austerity, forbearance, right? Um, so given that that is the, the characterization of the ideal Brahmin, uh, do we ever see Padushurama, um chastised or judged for his very <laughs> extreme uh, violent, uh, non-Brahmanical behavior? So, yeah, good, good question. Uh, we do in, in the South, in the, some of the Tumblr stories that David Shulman has translated. It's his, his book, um, uh, 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 and now I'm trying, now I'm blanking out on the name of the, the King of the Clown in South Asian poetry. So Shiva, who is also Parashrama's guru, is the one who most frequently appears and and uh, and chastises and taunts him for what he's done. It's, it's a very strange story where I think it's an 18th century story where Shiva calls Parshuram's act of killing his mother a brahminicide, and just no one no one who commits brahminicide can ever be forgiven for it. Of course, Shiva is the one, right? <laughs> who decapitates uh, Brahma, and so. It has to become the Kapalika. And so uh, Parashurama gets very angry and, uh, and these situations resolve and Shiva reveals himself. But uh, this, is a, this, is, this is an opportunity where he is confronted with his, with his actions um, by Shiva. But in the end, uh, like I say, is sort of brought back into the Shiva fold. There are also critiques of him from sort of the modern um, the modern mindset. So in Maharashtra, people writing in the in the wake of of, of uh, Ambedkar's critique of of Hinduism have said, you know, these Hindu gods are all a bunch of scoundrels. Look at Parashurama and all the things that he does, and so they write about him there. And so it's not just it happens within the stories, happens outside the stories, uh, and it and it never really. Um, it's, this is a strange thing about why is he a, why is he an avatar? He, he can't find very many Parashurama temples, and outside of these texts, uh, he's he is he's mainly a he's mainly a literary character who somehow is important enough to be one of the ten incarnations of, of Vishnu, and that that was really the question I started with. Uh, so, why does if the text if the tradition wanted to keep him, why didn't they whitewash his story? You know, like with Hercules. Hercules, of course, we know Hercules killed his family and had to do all these labors. But if you now Disney Hercules, there's no, he didn't kill his family, right? He's just really strong. He just becomes a really strong guy. Why didn't that happen to Parashurama? Why couldn't they get rid of this? I think because the conflict, as nasty as it is, is the character. And that's what you need with Parashurama. So the only, some groups have tried to sanitize him, like the Pancharathras. Uh, when they made his enemies demons instead of kings, but that's never really caught on. I mean, he's really he is the he's the mother slayer, he's the Kshatriya slayer, and uh, and you can't you can't sanitize him because you sanitize him; he's not worth anything anymore. So the symbol well, has to have that that core of transgression. Yeah, there, there's there's so many interesting things. Uh, just a bit before you were talking about. Um, in southern regional um, um, expressions of of the myth cycle, that it's Shiva who chastises him, chastises him 
goads him. Um, yet uh, in the Mahabharata, his student, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, oh, it's actually Ashvataman is possessed by Shiva mm-hmm. to slaughter the Pandavas <laughs> um, during during the night. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. Um, but yeah, there's this. Uh, it, it, how do I say the? Um, this character, the, the, the contours of his biography are so deeply entrenched in the imaginary that it's very difficult to sanitize him. Because to sanitize him is really to eclipse who and what he is, right? To sanitize him is, is, is to really, then, then what's left there? I mean, to sanitize him is to take away what we know of his biography, what's, what's left, yeah, of, of who and what he stands for. Right. I mean, in the attempts to do it, they all seem kind of flat. I mean, the Pancharatrans, uh, they, they, you know, their their theologization theologization of the of the master doesn't really catch on. But you see some world inscriptions talking about a, a king can do to his enemies what Parashurama did to his enemies without mentioning you know, that the enemies were also kings. But I think those things are just sort of fits and starts. But his what stayed constant is his transgressive uh, nature and his sort of aloneness in that way. And he's a very lonely figure. He he lives. He has no contact. Right? He has one helper named Kritavana who conducts visitors to see him once in a while. But he basically lives for eons upon eons alone not meditating, but really just withdrawn from the world. There's a great part of the Ramayana where it explains this, where he's, he's, he's still around. The, the next avatar comes, Rama, and they meet. And Rama says there can only be one avatar at a, at a time and takes his avatar hood. And it, and it goes away. And there's all these different versions that I looked at where it, it's drawn out from him like energy. And he is then just a shell. I mean, his purpose for being on earth is, is to complete the, you know, the work of Vishnu, to re-balance dharma and adharma. But once that purpose is gone and he can't go with it, he becomes sort of a void. And so that, that, that was fascinating uh, to me. What, what do you do when you create a, a being for a specific purpose, take away that purpose, and then immortalize the being? You have someone with really no, no reason. Anymore. So, well, there's plenty of sages who live by themselves meditating, but they're meditating for a goal. They're doing something, right? They want they want liberation. They want power. He's got it. He has nothing left to get, and nothing nowhere left to go. What a lonely existence! Right? It's like it's like you know. Uh, uh, well, the other the, the character that I kept thinking about and had to write into the book because I couldn't really. It was just sort of sort of stuck in my mind was the wandering Jew. In European myth and legend, now there's sorts of different versions of it, but in one version, he is the guy who, um, he's, sometimes he's a Roman guard who tells Jesus to hurry up on the way to the cross, and Jesus turns to him and says, I says, I'll hurry, but you wait for me until I come back. And he curses him to stay on earth until the second coming. And so he can't die. He has nowhere to go and nowhere to be. And he's just uh, a, an immortal, banished for a person living under like a homo sector who can't is in society or at least uh, on the same plane as society, but can no longer be part of it. Every other being like Parashurama finds some way to move to a different level, to a heaven or, or to uh, transform and be reborn in some other form. None of that happens. He can't, he can't do any, he can't change. And so that was to me, I, I thought, you know, what does that mean? And I still, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what it means, but it calls, it tells me there's something worth looking at. It, it's, it's, uh, it's uniqueness. Well, it, it uh, dramatizes the very tension um, you write about in terms of the same character being, uh, having a very specific um, function as an avatar for a time in a place. And that same character wandering wherever, whenever, because he lives forever. And so there is that tension um, that in many ways, I think, is uh, analogous of the tension in what we call myth itself, that it speaks to culture and circumstance and geography. And also it wanders everywhere forever because it's sort of always 
there, there are elements of uh, mythological stories that are part of everywhere, everyone, every time, as ridiculous as that sounds. Um, so part of the, uh, certainly in Sanskrit narrative texts, there is this anxiety about violence that I think is just sort of the natural evolute of, of sort of, 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 of the successful campaign to fold in um, one subversive sort of ascetic ideals, right? Uh, nonviolent ascetic ideals. And the successful campaign occurs over a century and is, it blossoms into the epics, etc. And there's this, this is anxiety about violence. And then there's sort of this, this uh, many ways in which it's sort of tacitly resolved or preserved in that world. Well, the Kshatriyas can be violent and the Brahmanas can now, uh, can, can now be nonviolent. Or, or um, you know, violence is necessary for protection. Rama slaughters all kinds of people. Rama, the the the, the uh, uh, you know the famous Rama slaughters all kinds of people, but for a higher purpose. This idea that 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 the, that the avatara's prime function is protection, for which violence is absolutely necessary, and yet. Uh, in terms of being among the other nine avatars, um, would you say the same of Parashurama? Is this a violent serve for the purpose of protecting? Well, I think that this is what the Pancharachans try to do. They make him into demons. Now, also, uh, elsewhere in the epic, this is hinted at too, that he is creating a new pure Kshatriya race. Right? By, and Brahmins are siring the sons on the Kshatriya widows. But he never says that's what he wants to do. All he wants to do is kill them all in vengeance for his father's death. And so these seem to be to me, later justifications for it. But if, if the annihilation of the Kshatriyas, I don't think anybody could possibly think it sounds like a just action. Um, how can the, I mean, the, 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 the sons, grandsons, grandsons, of a king who wasn't even related to the king who killed the kings whose son his sons killed Parashurama's father. What must they think that as they grow up, a man comes around and kills them all after they've had a chance to impregnate some women, and they can go and kill them again? It just—it's very grim. It's very—it's very gory. It's very creepy. It's—it's—it's it's, it's like a, a a human hunter, right? So this is very hard to reconcile with Vishnu's restoration of Dharma and Adharma. I mean, it kind of happens, right, when he, he creates a new race of Kshatriyas, but then they go and kill themselves again in the, in the Mahabharata war anyway. It doesn't seem that they were all that much better than the ones that came before. I, you know, I thought, well, maybe I'm just, I'm just reading. I've just been looking at this too long, and I'm, you know, I've got too much. Uh, I'm making too many leaps and everything. But then I read some contemporary Hindu, uh, sorry, contemporary Indian uh, uh, material, like comic books based on Parashurama. And they take this same theme and really make it explicit. They make him this unkillable warrior. It was one great comic book that has him fighting alongside Napoleon and World War I, all the great conquests of the history. He's there just to watch all the death happen, and then he comes and waits for the next one. So it's, it's, it doesn't seem like he's happy to do anything. He is it's sort of trapped in this world, and also... I mean, the, the best example, and the one that I sort of used to bookend the, the whole book that I wrote, is this poem from 1980, a Malayalam poem, where Parashurama is sitting on the top of a peak and he's reflecting on his life and how utterly pointless all the destruction is and how now the world is made in his image. And so now there's just, people think like he used to think, to, 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 to destroy each other is the answer, will bring justice or something. So uh, this, this, the symbolism of Parashurama isn't all just in my head, right? This has been deployed as ways of thinking about really complicated and conflicted uh, emotions and, um, and dispositions through a character, a literary character. And that's what I, I tried to sort of, I tried to kind of uh, show that in action. Well, it's the very uh, it's the very appeal um, I think the very appeal of of such characters and such narratives is their uh, ability to encapsulate the, the, the paradox and the gore of human experience 
um, as only narrative can, because narrative isn't concerned about non-contradiction, right? Narrative is fine saying, well, it's X and it's not X. What's your problem? Like get over it or, or <laughs> deal with it with another part of self. You're not going to get a logical answer. And so, so uh, clearly there is no possible way to reconcile. Um, uh, <laughs> I think my very first uh, paper that I presented <laughs> at a grad conference, this might've been 20, I don't know, sometime 2007, 2008. It was called Resolving Rama. <laughs> huh. the, 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 the other Rama. Yeah, the, the other Rama. <laughs> and I sort of concluded, well, you know, you're not, that's the, there is no resolving Rama. He's, he's, he, there's an ambivalence there on purpose. And I think that is, you know, to the nth degree with, with the other Rama, with the Rama that you write about. Mm. Um, uh, like for example, in 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 the Ram, in the Valmiki Rama, in any ways, you know, violence never erupts at Ayodhya. You know, he he very um, sort of sagaciously or nobly or um, maybe foolishly acquiesces on this day of exile to this ridiculous scheming. No, 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 no worries, Dad. You made a promise. I I will do the right thing. I'll I'll behave like a sage. And here you have, I mean, he's a warrior. And here you have an actual Brahmana by birth who uh, is. Um, bent on massacre uh, without retribution really without um, judgment until much later anyhow um, fascinating right absolutely fascinating and I think I think uh, well deserves uh, sort of the sustained uh, an interesting um, discussion that you provide in this book um, is there anything either in the book or about the character or sort of um, any of the themes that you you hoped we would touch on? Well, you know, I, I um, it's so much easier to write a book about this kind of thing than to talk about it because uh, it's easier to sit down and, and try and really plot things out. Uh, so, so I would say to better understand what I actually want to say about Parashrama reading the book would be a, uh, is the best is, is the way to do that uh, i'm not sure how much sense i can make uh otherwise but i will the last thing i'll say is that one of the final sort of insights or delusions that i had reading uh this story and writing this book was that first from is a destroyer but he's also a creator of a very specific thing he creates over and over and over again his family situation, a dead father and a living mother. He creates orphans with widows. And so you could say that any war kind of does that, but he does it in a very purposeful way to leave sons without fathers raised by mothers. Oh, that, that's what his massacre, you can read it in that way, is he's not killing Kshatriyas, he's making mother-son pairs of Kshatriyas. And I thought, well, you know, what does that mean? And I think that uh, when you look at the way his uh, Renuka's mythology becomes the mythology of a certain kind of a mother in South India, uh, the divided mother, then I think you have to um, then see that the matricide and the genocide or the varnicide are two sides of the same coin. They're an inversion of each other. The cutting off the head of his mother and bringing her back is the destruction of the Kshatriyas and then bringing them back again and again. And what's, what is this? A repetition compulsion. This is a thing that Freud was um, early on talking about and thinking about. Well, what does it mean? Why do you, why are you repeated? Why, why are you compelled to repeat? Compelled to replicate the same situation over and over again. And I thought, well, this is, you know, this is, this is what he's doing. Let's, let's find out why. Oh, he's creating children in his own image, you might say. Uh, fascinating, fascinating observation. Um, for those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Brian Collins on his really interesting um, study of uh, Parashurama called The Other Rama. Um, thanks very much for speaking with me today. It's a really Thank interesting you. interview. You. You're most welcome. Oh, let me ask you before you go, what's, what's on the... What are you working on now? Well, uh, I am right now. I am co-editing 
with a, with, with a DT Sin and Ellen Goldberg, a volume of essays on Bollywood horror and religion. And so it's called Bollywood Horrors, and it's coming out on um, Bloomsbury Academic Press uh, in the fall. And that's, that's my next, it'll probably be coming out around the same time this book actually comes out. And you know, that's, that's a project that I'm working on now. It's in its final stages. And then the, la the next thing I'm going to work on when I'm finally done with all that is uh, I'm trying to write a global history of human sacrifice. <laughs> There's no shortage of, um, of work there and ideas and, and, and sort of inspiration. It's fascinating. So once again, Dr. Brian Collins on The Other Rama. For those of you listening, until next time, uh, keep reading and keep listening. Oh, if you have any comments, suggestions, ideas, uh, I'm at Raj at rajbachorn.com. Thanks very much. Take care. <laughs>